0: our American stories. And every once in a while, we like to dig into the world of entertainment. And we love this day's in history, and sometimes we merge the two. History isn't just George Washington and men in wigs. It's women in wigs in the entertainment business. And Lucille Ball passed away this day in history in 1989. She was born in August 6, 1911, in Jamestown, New York to Henry Durrell Ball and his wife, Desiree. And this improbable start led to one of the iconic careers in American entertainment history, a trailblazer, a first of firsts, influenced so many other performers, one of whom we'll cover in this hour too, Carol Burnett. Lucille Ball, no doubt, had a gigantic influence. The two actually performed quite a bit together as their careers arced and overlapped. Lucille Ball starting to ebb as Cal Burnett's was starting to rise. And Cal Burnett, well, that was one of the great shows in the history of television. You can put on any of them. I dare you, I defy you to not laugh at this remarkable ensemble comedy. And it's not comedy like anyone's ever seen before or after, frankly. It was unique. But on to Lucille Ball. The oldest of the couple's two children. Lucille and her little brother had a hard childhood, shaped by tragedy and a lack of money. By the way, we hear this over and over again with comedians' lives. Their tough lives. Ball's father died in February 1915, when he was struck with typhoid fever. For Ball, just three years old at the time, this would serve as the young girl's first real significant memory. Ouch. By the age of 11, Lucille enrolled in drama school. And by 1927, she had found work as a model. By the way, take a look at pictures of the young Lucille Ball. And it is very hard for beautiful women to also be funny. It's very hard for beautiful men to also be funny. Think of the great comics who were beautiful, male or female. Keep thinking. And while you keep thinking, we'll tell you the story. You're going to come up with nobody. And by the way, Lucille Ball made herself look unbeautiful. She knew that the beauty had to be cut. So she shaped her hair in ways that made her look ordinary. She didn't make herself up. She dressed dowdy. She had a stunning figure. You'd never know it. All for the laughs. All for the laughs. In the early 1930s, she moved to Hollywood and found a role on a musical comedy. And in 1937, she had a sizable part in the film Stage Door. And that was with Katherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers. And by the way, she steals every scene every scene Ball would appear in 72 movies during her career, one of her earliest a movie called Dance Girl Dance from 1940, introduced her to a handsome Cuban bandleader named Desi Arnaz
1: I am just a sweet young thing of 22 (laughs) or so I never sink to smoke or drink. My life is one long. What? No. (laughs) I finished at Miss Sniffing School, a model debutante. I know each fork and spoon and rule. I don't say can't, but can't. My etiquette is ooh, may we. I pour a proper pot of tea. And even when I need a nip, I never, never, never slip. Well, almost never. <laughs> oh, cut it out, fellas.
0: And there it is, right there. Everything the wit, the timing, the sass, spunky, sexy, playing with her sexuality. And comfortable with men. Knowing exactly where to stop the accent. Knowing exactly when to stop. And when to shut up. And that's the key to comedy. Silence. Ball dyed her hair red in 1942. At the request of MGM. She was looking at a stagnant movie career. And unable to break into a starring role. As a result, Arnaz pushed his wife to try broadcasting. Broadcasting. And it wasn't long before Ball landed a lead part in the radio comedy, My Favorite Husband. This clip from an episode titled Vacation Time, originally aired April 29th, 1949.
1: As we look in on the Coopers today, it is a cold, rainy afternoon. And Liz is in her bedroom. Hey, wait a minute, that's funny. It's raining outside, but Liz is standing in front of the mirror wearing a backless, strapless sundress. Katie, come here a will you? Uh, Yes, Mrs. Cooper, what is this? How do you like my new sundress? Oh, where is it? I'm wearing it. (laughs) Is that all there is to it? Doesn't something go over there? No, this is that latest style. Doesn't it look like I've been poured into it? It certainly does. I only hope you don't spill over. Do you like it, Katie? Do you think I'll make an impression in this? Impression? You'll make a dent. How do you without any strap. It's held up by faith, hope, and don't exhale any more than you have to. My goodness, look at all these play clothes on the bed. Did you buy all these this morning? Yes, I just couldn't resist them, Katie. Isn't it awful? But I want to look good for George. After all, he's going to see a lot of me this summer. So is everybody else. (laughs) Oh, you're just old-fashioned, Katie. If you think that sundress is daring, look at my new French bathing suit. It's there on the bed. I don't see it. Here's your slacks, pedal pushers, your beach rope, and this little blue handkerchief. Well, that's funny. Oh, here it is. No wonder you couldn't see the bathing suit. It was under the handkerchief.
0: And there you had it. My favorite husband caught the attention of CBS executives who wanted her to recreate something like it on the small screen. And by the way, it was just the beginning of television. Good luck and serendipity have so much to do in life. But she didn't quit when she was having a problem. She tried something new. Ball, though, insisted it include her real-life husband, something the network wasn't interested in at all. So Ball walked away. And with Desi, they put together an I Love Lucy-like vaudeville act and took it on the road. Success soon greeted the pair, so too did a contract from CBS. More on this day in history, Lucille Ball passed away. We'll be back. Leslie Habib, and it's this day in history time, brought to you as always by Hillsdale College, and we're celebrating the life of Lucille Ball. And I Love Lucy made its debut, and to the television viewing audience across the country, it was immediately apparent that this was a sitcom like no other. Ball and Arnez knew exactly what they wanted from the network. Their demands included the opportunity to create their new program in Hollywood rather than New York. Where most TV was still being shot. But the biggest hurdle centered on the couple's preference to shoot on film rather than a less expensive format. When CBS told them it would cost too much, Ball and Arnaz agreed to a pay cut. Boy, that's putting your money where your mouth is, huh? Wow. In return, they would retain full ownership rights to the program and run it under their newly formed production company, Desi Lu Productions. Oh my goodness. I Love Lucy touched on many themes, including pregnancy. When Lucy gave birth to little Ricky on January 19th, 1953, the same day the real life Lucy delivered her son Desi Jr., in this scene, Lucy is having a pregnancy craving.
2: Oh, honey, where have you been? What took you so long? What do you mean, what took me so long? I had to go all over
1: town. There's only one store in New York City that makes a papaya used milkshake. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Mmm. Oh. Did you get the dill pickle? (laughs)
2: don't stop having these silly cravings at four o'clock in the morning. I'm going to freeze to death. Here.
1: this pistachio? Yeah,
2: that's pistachio. Here's your spoon. Which is that? Hot fudge.
1: Pour it on top. <laughs> now pour that right on top of this.
2: But honey, these are sardines. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh boy. <laughs>
0: and you don't have to see it to see it. Because <laughs> she was such a great comedian. And by the way, comedian. We were talking about this groundbreaking woman because take away the woman part of it. She was a feminist before there were feminists, but she was just doing it. And she was better than the guys. And she made it on her own terms. And that was just what was so stunning about Ball. In classic episode of I Love Lucy, the vita meat of Viga Min was a fictitious health <laughs> tonic in the episode Lucy Does a TV Commercial. As she auditions for the role in this commercial, she continually sips from the elixir that contains 23% alcohol. By the end of the sketch, Lucy is sloshed.
1: Hello, friends. I'm your of Benjamin girl. Are you tired, run-down, listless? List. Do you Yes, Vitaminata Vegemin contains vitamins, meat, vegetables, and minerals. Yes, with vitamin Vegemin, you can spoon your way to health. All you do is take a big tablespoonful after every meal. <laughs> it's so tasty, too. It tastes just like candy. Well, I'm your vitamin bag here. Are you tired of running down listless? List? <laughs> If you pop out a party, it's so tasty,
0: too. As the title of the show indicated, Lucy was the star and listened to what she just did. Fun, silly, made herself look ridiculous, at ease with humiliating herself for a laugh. While she could at times downplay her hard work, she was a perfectionist. Contrary to perception, rarely was anything ad-libbed. It was routine for the actress to spend hours rehearsing her antics and facial expressions and her groundbreaking work in comedy paved the way for Mary Tyler Moore, Penny Marshall, Carol Burnett and Sybil Shepard. Here, Carol Burnett talks about her friend Lucille Ball being a perfectionist who demanded the best from her staff.
3: Well, she never censored herself from here to here. Whatever she said She was thinking, and it came out. And sometimes you'd think, whew, she's a little like she'll say, What's that light up there for? What are you doing with the light? Like that to the lighting guy. You know, you say, Lucy, I'm doing this exercise. She said, Okay, let me see what you. Great, great. So she was never picking on anybody. She just was the way she was. And uh, they would lay their lives down for her. Because when she said, that's great, she meant it. When she said, that stinks, she meant it, but it was never personal.
0: During its six-year run, I Love Lucy's success was unrivaled. Four of its seasons, the sitcom was number one in the country. In 1953, the program captured an unheard of 63.7 audience share, which included a 71.1 rating for the episode that featured Little Ricky's birth. A turnout that surpassed the television audience for President Eisenhower's inauguration ceremonies. That's crazy. While the show ended in 1957, Desilu Productions continued on, producing more television hits like Our Miss Brooks, Make Room for Daddy, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Untouchables, Star Trek, and Mission Impossible. Not bad. In 1960, Ball and Arnez divorced. Two years later, Ball bought out her former husband and took over Desilu Productions, making her the first woman to run a major television production studio. Wow. She eventually sold the company to Gulf and Western in 1967 for $17 million. Here's Lucille on The Johnny Carson Show back in 1969. Her and Johnny talk about how much the television world had changed up to that point.
2: You're not getting tired of doing television, are you? Did you get to a point once where you were going to quit and says... No, I never got to a point where I was going to quit. I've been on 18 years. No, not 18 years. Yes, 18 years. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Mm
4: -hmm. Incredible.
2: Of course, television has changed quite a bit since I started. It has. I see the reruns occasionally and the skirts and the styles. That's the only... The comedy is still great. Mm -hmm. When I first started in television, I appeared on our show in... um, uh, shall I say, a slightly pregnant condition, That's right. which we were asked to refer to as expecting, because some of the viewers had complained. Imagine complaining about that. Nowadays, you not only see people, women, pregnant, but
0: how they got that way. <laughs> <laughs> true.
2: You're, you're right. true. You're right. That is true.
0: That is true. More acting work followed, including a pair of sitcoms, The Lucy Show, Sixty-two to sixty-eight, and here's Lucy, sixty-eight to seventy-three. Both achieved a modest level of success, but neither captured the magic that had defined her earlier program with Arnez. In nineteen seventy-four, Lucille told Barbara Walters what she thought of Desi.
2: He had his own band, and he was in a play in New York, and he was a kid when you were married. When but we were then, first married. at the success, we build up right, a lot of things. Right. But, but even while they were building, them. they would not believe that he was doing the building. Yeah. And he was doing the successful building of a very well-run empire. I was doing the acting and having the children. I, was, I had no part of it. I took that on much later. I married a loser before. They, he, he could win, win, high, high, high stakes. He could work very hard. He was brilliant. But he had to lose.
0: When the Kennedy Center honored Lucille Ball in 1986, Desi Arnaz had just died five days earlier following a long bout with cancer. He wrote a touching statement for this event, which is read here by Robert Stack. Lucy struggled to keep her composure while the letter was read. She was sitting next to Ronald and Nancy Reagan at the time.
1: I love Lucy at just one mission,
3: to make people laugh. Lucy gave it a rare quality. She can perform the wildest, even the messiest physical comedy without losing her feminine appeal. The New York Times asked me to divide the credit for its success between the
1: writers, the directors, and the cast. I told them, give Lucy 90% of the credit and divide the other 10% among the rest of us. Desi concluded, Lucy was the show. Viv, Fred, and I were just props. Damn good props, but props nevertheless. P.S. I love Lucy
0: it was never just the title. And Lucille, on April 26, 1989, died. Carol Burnett remembers the first time she met her hero.
3: First time I met Lucy was uh, when I was in an off-Broadway show called Once Upon a Mattress, and this was on the second night after we opened. I can still remember the date. was May 12, 1959. I thought I had recovered from my opening night nerves, but I really became a total wreck when the word came backstage that Lucille Ball was in the audience. Somehow I managed to cover my jitters and I fooled everybody, except Lucy. After the show, she came backstage and she sat with me for nearly an hour, and by the time she left, I was completely calmed down.
0: This is Lee Habib, and on the day Lucille Ball died, Cal Burnett was actually born on the same day. When we come back, Cal Burnett's life, this day in history. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and you're listening to the theme music to The Carol Burnett Show. And on the day that Lucille Ball died, which is today, April 26th, Carol Burnett was born quite a number of years later, but same day. What a remarkable thing. Perhaps the two greatest comedians of their era, and I believe just the two best comedians. And let's just say they would have been... Honored to be called comedians And not just comedians In fact I think they would have felt slighted If you only called them comedians Because they rose Both of them rose above their women's status They were both the leads Men played the subordinate parts With Carol Burnett several brilliant men Played the subordinate part Some of the best comic actors in history Couldn't hold a candle to her None of those guys could have done their own show No chance And by the way what studs Harvey Corman, particularly was in subordinating their talents to a woman at a time when nobody did. But they knew greatness was happening, and I don't think there was a better show in history than the Carol Burnett show. That's just my humble opinion. She was born this day in history in 1933, one of the most popular comedians on television. She was born in San Antonio, Texas to Joseph and Ina Burnett. After her parents divorced in the late 1930s, Carol moved in with her grandmother to a small apartment in Hollywood, California. And again, folks, it's a theme you'll hear over and over and over. Pain. Lots of it. And comedians running to comedy as a refuge from dysfunctional childhoods, very often painful memories. Here's Carol talking about those early years living with her grandmother, whom she calls a hypochondriacal, christian scientist whatever that is who liked to seduce by the way she liked to seduce young men
3: we had a one room and with the murphy pull down bed which never went back up into the wall because my grandmother was always lying down on it and saying i don't know if i can live another day (laughs) You know, and she was always feeling her pulse. But what was funny was, she she, she was a Christian Scientist, <laughs> and, and you know, she but she was a hypochondriacal Christian Scientist. So she'd say, "Okay, now i the, as they say in Christian Science, know the truth for me, which means you know, there's you're not going to be ill and everything's going to be fine." And so I'd be a little girl and I'd be doing that, you know, and then she'd say. Go get me an aspirin. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so it was like. So I got mixed messages and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but then I found out years later when I was writing a, an autobiography or a memoir, I should say, uh, I found out she. I known that she'd been married three times. That I knew, and then I found out that she'd been married six times. She had actually. Um, seduced her second husband, who was, uh, uh, she had taught him piano lessons, and uh, she, um, uh, he was quite a bit younger, and she, and he uh, eloped to Texas from Arkansas, and uh, his mother came and got him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness, we were laughing, but my goodness, what a thing to discover, ouch, you didn't even know your mom, you didn't even know how many husbands she had. That's painful. After studying theater arts and English at the University of California at Los Angeles as an aspiring playwright, Burnett left school early and made her way to New York City with her boyfriend in hopes of breaking into acting. She made her first TV appearance in the early 1950s with a short stint on a children's TV program. Soon after, she began co-starring with Buddy Hackett on the sitcom Stanley, and that's 1956 to 7, and in 59, Burnett became a regular on The Gary Moore Show. Over the years, she was also featured on occasional CBS specials. Already a popular performer, she got her own comedy variety show, The Carol Burnett Show, in 1967. In addition to Burnett, the cast consisted of Vicki Lawrence, Harvey Corman, Lyle Wagoner, Tim Conway, and Dick Van Dyke. In a recent interview, Carol told Seth Meyers how she got the Carol Burnett show on the air after she was told that variety shows were a man's game.
3: I had a peculiar contract with uh, CBS. It was a 10-year contract. And uh, within the first five years, there was a clause, a wonderful clause, that said that if I wanted to do a one-hour variety show, within the first five years, they would have to put it on, whether they wanted to or not. That's a good... You had a good lawyer. I sure did. Yeah. But, you know, I I never thought I would want to do it until about the last week of the fifth year. Uh Uh-huh. We just bought a house in California. We put a down payment on it, and I had not been employed that much. Got it. Yeah, and I said, you know what? Maybe we'd better uh, push that button, (laughs) you know? And so I called uh, CBS back here in New York, one of the vice presidents, and I said, you know, I, I... Oh, and it was, like, between Christmas and New Year's, you know, so... Okay, it was a very small last, window. ...last five days. And he, I said, I want to push that button, and he went, huh? <laughs> he had totally, they'd totally forgotten about it. Oh, wow. And they uh, got a bunch of lawyers out of uh, Christmas parties that night, and, <laughs> and he called me back the next day, and he said, well, yeah, Carol, I see that, but, you know, variety, comedy variety... It's not for gals. It's a man's game. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. He said, you know, it's Sid Caesar, it's Jackie Gleason, now it's Dean Martin. He said, you know, we've got this great sitcom we'd love you to do called Here's Agnes. Oh, no. (laughs) I bet he didn't say it Um, like that. It's called, here's Agnes. (laughs) No, he could just see it. Yeah. And I said, but I don't want to be Agnes. I don't want to be the same person week after week. Mm -hmm. I'm a sketch comedian. I want to be different characters. I want music, guest stars, a rep company, you know, all kinds of stuff. And they had to put us on the air. If I hadn't had that clause in the contract, I wouldn't be here tonight. Oh, my goodness. Well, no, because Here's Agnes would have been the biggest show. I wouldn't have said, now the star of the longest-running sitcom, Here's Agnes. Hi, there.
0: (laughs) No, but that's not actually true, because Carol Burnett wouldn't have been good in that. This is the thing. Seth's wrong. Seth and Carol talk about the intense production schedule of that Carol Burnett show.
3: The most episodes I ever did in a season of SNL, which had a far bigger cast than The Carol Burnett Show, I'm sure more writers, was 22. You did 30 in your first year. Yes. And then down to 20, only 20, like 28. 28, and then I think around the fifth, sixth year, then we settled in for 26. I can't even imagine. And how much time, I mean, obviously, it doesn't give you more than a week to prepare for each episode, I'm assuming. Right, right, I mean, that's unreal to me. I can't But we would do two shows on Fridays. Okay. uh, The same uh, tape in front of an audience. And and then we uh, five o'clock and then we do an eight o'clock show in front of a different audience, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, we would tape about an hour and 15 minutes with all the music, the sketches, the costume changes, all of that in about two hours. We'd be out of there in time to go to dinner.
0: Amazing. Amazing. And when we come back, we're going to dig into some of the best scenes from the Carol Burnett show, more about her life. And what a thing. By the way, we learned this about Dolly Parton, too. Her ability to negotiate for herself. We did an hour on her. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org. That toughness to just say, no, here's how my career is going to go. I'm leaving this show. I'm keeping my song, I Will Always Love You. We learned that Elvis Presley wanted it, and he wanted half the publishing. And she said no at a time when she desperately needed the money, and she needed the hit. And my goodness, Elvis would have made it a hit. But many, many years later, Whitney Houston made it a gigantic hit and made Dolly Parton a small fortune. And so these are remarkable women. They're They're not just talented. They're groundbreakers. They're pioneers. And they're business people. They're fierce business people, and all to keep their independence, all to protect their art. That's what it was really about. It wasn't about business. It was, I will not let somebody else control who I am on the air period. More on this remarkable life story. Carol Burnett, born on this day in history. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The life of Carol Burnett. We just did the life of Lucille Ball. Born and died, both of them, on the same day. Ball died on this day in history, and Carol Burnett was born. And let's take you to the beginning of the very first Carol Burnett show, which originally aired on September 11th, 1967. She breaks the fourth wall. She does something no one else had ever done before in television. She actually takes a few questions from the audience which he turned into a stand-up routine.
1: CBS presents this program in color.
3: Welcome to our, our first show that we're doing. I'm real excited and very... very- Happy that you're all with us tonight. Looks like we got a nice full group. Could you bump up the lights so I could see? Oh, gorgeous! While we're uh, getting ready back there, b- b- before the opening number, I just uh, thought it'd be nice to come out and chat and get to know you, and you get to know me, and everything before we start. So, if you have any questions at all you'd like to ask, don't hesitate to uh, ask. Anything at all you want you want to know about the show or who's on or Uh, what? Yes, sir. Who's on? Oh, you just thought that up.
0: (laughs) And that's the thing. She planted some questions. She was making fun of the entire medium itself, standing on its head. It's not the funniest segment. We didn't want to do that. The purpose of that was to show you that from the beginning, she wanted to break new ground. And back then, it was just bringing on the best new celebrity. It was all about which celebrities you could snag. And she said, no, my crew's going to become the celebrity. Carol Burnett show did hundreds of hilarious sketches over the years. In this clip, Carol's character is in bed with her husband, who is played by Tim Conway, when they get a late-night wrong number.
2: Hello? Who was it? I don't know. Didn't say anything, just hung up. Why'd they hang
3: up?
2: probably had the wrong number
3: why would someone call a wrong number at this time of (laughs) night
2: calling the wrong number any time of night
3: why would they pick this number
2: I don't think they picked this number probably just dialed got the wrong number
3: is it a signal
2: (laughs) What a signal.
3: Your friend that called.
2: He's not my friend.
3: He's not? No. But you said they didn't say anything. No.
2: They didn't.
3: And how do you know it's a he?
2: I don't. But you just
3: said, he's not my friend.
2: Well, it's just a figure of speech when you say that, see? What I should have said was, whoever it was didn't say
3: anything. Why didn't you say that?
0: I don't know.
2: I wish I would have.
0: (laughs) By the way, if you've ever dated or known or have a family member who's a paranoid, that is what it sounds like. And Burnett would play all these different characters and slip in and out of them. That sketch went on for another seven minutes. It just kept going and going. What great actors. (laughs) What great actors. In November 1976, the series' 10th year, The Carol Burnett Show presented its ultimate classic sketch, Went With the Wind, a takeoff on the 1939 film Gone With the Wind, which had aired for the first time that month on NBC the week before. Carol reflects on how it all came together and nearly tore her apart physically.
3: Gone with the Wind was going to be shown in its entirety. So I went to the writers and I said, you know, uh, we should do a takeoff on that and say, if for those of you who can't sit for four hours and watch Gone with the Wind, here's, here's our version. <laughs> Remember me, Miss Starlet? Oh, my goodness, I thought she jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. And so two of our young writers, he had done his thesis in college on Gone with the Wind. So he knew every scene. So they put together this 20 minutes Good of, I think, brilliant writing. Back. When Harvey says, I love that dress, his gown is gorgeous, and I say, I saw it in the window and I just couldn't resist it, it was a brilliant line. That, that, that gown is gorgeous. <laughs> Thank
4: you.
2: I saw it in the window and I just couldn't resist it. <laughs> Wait, <did> you <laughs> <at> you...
3: <laughs> I really fell down those stairs nine times that day because we did... Because I, I fall down three times in the sketch. But we did a rehearsal in the morning, a dress rehearsal in front of an audience in the afternoon, and then the air show. So that's nine times I tumble down the stairs.
0: And that's the thing. And again, we got back to the meticulous nature of Lucille Ball. Trust me, this was one hardworking person, too. There's a tremendous piece on PBS on, on Carol Burnett and the work ethos of her and her crew. And they didn't wing it. They, they ultimately did live performance. But boy, did they practice. Here's another clip from The Burnett Show where they tackle the subject of political correctness within television production
3: things about doing a weekly television show is making sure that you don't offend anybody and that's really kind of hard because there's so many different people from different walks of life and various ethnic groups watching the show that that we really have to be very careful so what we try to do is censor ourselves ahead of time before we go on the air so that we won't accidentally say anything that could possibly offend somebody and you know still sometimes it doesn't work but let me show you what I mean you all know Vicki Lawrence Show you how we rehearse the sketch. Like we're gonna we're gonna rehearse the sketch now for next week's show. Okay. Don't go away. Come in. Good morning, Mrs. Goldenbaum.
2: Uh, hold mm-hmm. it, Carol. Uh, yep. that name is a little Jewish.
3: Oh, uh, that voice is our director, Dave Powers. Yeah, Dave.
2: Uh, could we change it to Smith just to be safe?
3: Okay, The change Goldenbaum to Smith. Okay. You got all right. Uh, good morning, Mrs. Smith. How's Mr. Goldenbaum? <laughs> <laughs> Carol, yeah. uh, let's just drop it. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I'm ahead of you, right, got it. Okay, Dave. Uh, right, darling. Uh, <clears throat> good morning, Mrs. Smith. Hello, Mrs. Vitelli. Excuse th- me. Uh, oh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Carmine uh, Sandro, our prop man. Yes, Carmine. Well,
1: I was just wondering why you mentioned Vitelli. I oh, have no. a good friend,
3: Vitelli, who's just had to go to the hospital for an operation, oh, and I'm, I just didn't think... that. sorry. There. Well, isn't that a coincidence? Same it name. It yeah, sure is. Okay, Carmine, okay, we'll, we'll change the name. We didn't mean to offend her. Thank uh, you, Ms. Bernard. Okay, call me Carol. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, Dave. Uh, make
1: it Jones,
2: and okay.
3: the will make it Jones. Okay. Wait a minute.
2: Dave,
1: why Jones? Okay. And if you're gonna use Jones, why use a waker?
3: There are a lot of white people. There are a lot of white people named Jones. Oh, uh, ladies. I never heard of any. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this is our cameraman Hans Kaufman.
1: Uh, <laughs>
0: and you know groundbreaking then i'd love to hear her do it today oh my goodness how much more fun that episode could be the show also became known for its closing theme song written by burnett's husband with these lyrics i'm so glad we had this time together just to have a laugh or sing a song Seems we just get started and before you know it comes the time we have to say so long From its original broadcast, March 29, 1978, here are the final minutes of The Carol Burnett Show. Carol thanks the crew, talks about her decision to stop the show, and sings, I'm so glad we had this time together one last
3: time. Like graduation, it's a sad and a happy time. It can't be possible that it was 1967, when Harvey, Vicky, Lyle, and I stepped on this stage for the first time, because it does seem as if it were only yesterday. Those cliches really have a habit of uh, punching you in the nose, don't they? Recently, um, a lot of people have been running around and expressing their own opinions as to why I decided to quit at the end of this season. And I think I should be the one to tell you, seeing as how I'm the one who really knows. In our 11 years, we have had four different time slots, and we've had our share of being up there in the ratings and being down there in the ratings. And ratings do not have a thing to do with my decision. If they did, I would have called a halt to the proceedings a long time ago, because there have been many, many times when they've been a lot lower than they've been this season. And now, I do think it's classier to leave before you're asked to. And the fact that CBS picked our show up for a 12th year and was quite adamant about it is very flattering to all of us here on the show. However, I am adamant too, and I, I am so proud of our show and quite simply, I'm no dummy, now is the time to put it to bed and to go on to other things because change is growth. It's hard because all of us around here truly did become a second family. We've been through marriages and divorces and deaths and births. And I know the love that we have shared can never be measured by time. I'm so
0: glad had this time together. And so Carol Burnett did what Jerry Seinfeld did, what Johnny Carson did. They quit while they were ahead. And quit when they were great and still great. This is Lee Habib, the life of Lucille Ball, died this day in history, and the life of Carol Burnett, who was born on this day in history. Two great artists, two amazing women, but most of all, two spectacular entertainers. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. But the
3: time I like the best is any evil. here with you when the time comes and I'm feeling lonely.
0: This is Our American Stories, and it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're sure to be captivated by. And today, Bob recalls one particular day during his 13-week stay in Marine Boot Camp.
5: We had had a long day and we were tired and very hungry to make matters worse we were one of the last platoons to get into the mess hall for dinner as we filed in you could see dusk was coming from the setting sun the sun was rising when we started our day after heaping my tray with all the food i could i stood at attention along the table waited for the command to sit and eat sergeant calvert hollered in his deep and gravelly voice but and our butts hit the chair Get up, he said Get back to attention Let's try that again All I could think about was Oh, God, just let's get going here, man This is time to eat I just wanted to eat He said, I want to hear one sound of 80 butts hitting the seat Not 80 But hey feet." We repeated this exercise again and again Until he was satisfied What a jerk, I thought, as I sat down Finally, he gave the command to eat at attention. We were not to look around or talk. Only then did he give us the command to eat. Staring down at the tray and shoveling food in, I wanted something to drink. In front of the recruit sitting next to me was a metallic pitcher containing the Kool-Aid. With very little motion, I tilted my head and imperceptibly whispered the words, Kool-Aid, when all of a sudden boots came charging down the length of the table rattling the trays with each stomp. Standing before me on top of the table with his boots straddling my tray was Sergeant Calvert. He looked down at me with the visage of a wrathful god. I thought he was going to kick my mouth in with the polished leather toe of his boot. I froze for a moment. I didn't know what to do. And then he told me, cursing and yelling with a thunderous voice, he said, Are you suffering from rectal cranial inversion, Private McClellan? Is there something about the English language that you don't understand? You have disobeyed my orders. And for that, McClellan, you will pay. You will all pay. Now get up, all of you, and get out of here right now. Everybody fall outside into formation. Do you think you're at the slop shoot? This is no damn social club. Get outside and get into formation. One recruit ran out trying to shove food in his mouth until Staff Sergeant Fisher knocked the tray out of his hands, sending it and the food to the deck. Standing in the middle of the stampede, fleeing through the doorway, he knocked trays out of the hands of privates trying to poach food. I ran past the garbage can, knocked all the food out of the tray, stacked it on the wash rack and lined up in formation. I learned that day that though the Marine Corps has to feed us, they don't have to give us any time to eat. It was at moments like this that I hated Sergeant Calvert the most. In all platoons, there's always one DI that is the most dreaded, feared, and despised drill instructor of all. In Platoon 3095, that man was Sergeant Calvert. He was short, he was curt, monosyllabic, completely unsympathetic to our needs, and spoke with a deep, gargling voice that seemed to come up from his bowels. His diction was perfect though. He had a passion for hard consonants and long, long vowels. Each curse that left his lips would be elongated as if it was a musical note. He was indifferent to life under his command, and completely intolerant of individuals. I think the only book he'd ever read was the guidebook for Marines. Wearing his gray Marine Corps sweatshirt this morning was a sign that we would spend the day in hell. He approached me, and with his smoky bare brim, kept pushing the edge of it into my forehead while he upbraided me for thinking that his orders don't apply to me. He said that God had personally picked him to make my life as miserable as possible until I learned to follow directions. You seem to believe that my commands to eat and attention don't apply to you, Private McClellan. You must think you're someone very special. Is that what your mother told you, that you're very special, very precious? Maybe she wouldn't approve of the way we do things down here. Maybe she should come down here and help you pack and take you home with her. Well, you, Private McClellan, are no longer important anymore. The Marine Corps is. No one's coming to rescue you. You asked to be here. We didn't ask you to come here. We didn't ask you to join. You will regret your attitude. Looking up to my face, the bill of his smoky Bear kept tapping the bridge of my nose with its edge while he stuttered and screamed curses at me. Inches from my face, I had to stand staring straight ahead and feel the spray of his saliva spew out of his mouth scattered among his curses. I stood his attention, standing as tall as I could to make him see he was smaller than I was and shorter than I was, and keeping my eyes looking straight ahead, I didn't flinch. And at that moment, all I was thinking about was shoving my hand down his throat and ripping his larynx out when he stopped abruptly and walked behind me. I stood waiting for something to happen, but nothing did. I could not see where he was nor what he was doing. So in a few seconds, I just decided to relax a little bit. And within seconds of that, I could feel his breath. Coarsely whispering into my ear from behind me. With his lips barely touching my earlobe, he cooed. You don't like me, do you, McClellan? I think you hate me. I think you hate me, don't you, Private McClellan? No, sir, I shouted in protest. He whispered. To me, it breaks my heart to know that you're upset with me, Private McClellan. I thought we'd be good friends down here, you and me. Maybe you disapprove of my instructions. Am I hurting your feelings, Private McClellan? Are you going to write and tell your mother? No, sir, I yelled again in protest. Coming around from behind me, he once again pushed that brim into my forehead. And inches from my eyes, he said, I can see right now, Private, you are thinking of how much you would like to hurt me, aren't you? No, sir, I said. Oh, yes, you are, McClellan. Do I look stupid to you? You look stupid to me.
0: And when we come back, we're going to find out what happens to Bob McClellan and Sergeant Calvert, the McClellan Files, here on Our American Story. Turn to Bob McClellan's story about his marine drill instructor, Sergeant Calvert, who made his life at Marine Boot Camp a living hell.
5: I think you're a real dumb sh*t Private. So let me make something real clear to you. Anytime you want a piece of me, you go for it. Look around first before you do and say goodbye to the world you knew. Because if you ever raise your hand towards me, you will never leave this base. With his voice rising louder and louder with every syllable, he hollered, I will break you like an egg. And after I'm done with you, I'll keep rotating your ass back for as long as it is necessary. Then widening his eyes, he looked through me saying, And you will never, ever, ever leave here. Do you understand me, Private? Yes, sir, I answered. I wanted to get under his skin in the worst way but I knew I'd pay a terrible price for such foolishness. Boot camp is designed to ensure recruits are never right and never win. There is no victory here. My best outcome would be to survive it and head somewhere else. So I just took it. Standing in platoon formation, he ordered us to right face. He said we were gonna go on a little run to help us digest our meals. He didn't want us to get fat and lazy and ruin our figure in a Marine Corps uniform. I was up front since I was one of the taller recruits and up till now my wrestling experience kept me up with the challenge of conditioning. We headed out across the base down the road to the Naval Training Center at the end of the San Diego airport. When we turned onto this road, I knew he had lied to us. Passing by the Naval Training Center, We had to suffer the indignation of seeing sailors smoking, eating candy bars, drinking cokes and hollering insults at us. As we ran by in a cloud of dust, they gathered along the fence, yelling to us about how stupid we looked and what a bunch of dumbasses we were to join the Corps. At that moment I thought maybe my father was right, I might have been a lot happier in the Navy. The sun was almost gone and in the dim light we meandered along every road on the base as fatigue began to take its toll. I could hear men behind me gasping for air. My own chest was heaving from breathing deeply to get as much air into my blood as possible. My head tilted forward and my shoulders started to slouch. My legs were tired, and I was running out of gas. Soon, a couple men fell out to vomit their partially digested dinner while a couple others just collapsed and sat down alongside the road. One was crying. For every man who fell, two recruits had to fall out, help him up, and carry him if necessary. Marines leave no man behind, and we will finish with everyone in the platoon returning, dead or alive, or we will do this all night. Sergeant Calvert? Oh, he was impeccably dressed in his starch utilities, showing no sign of fatigue or perspiration. He continued running, leaving a trail of recruits on the road behind him, with Sergeant Fisher kicking the behinds of the slackers to get off their butts and get back into the platoon. To inspire us, Sergeant Calvert called for a song whose rhythmic chant would sing out to all that Platoon 3095 was coming to an obstacle course near you. To instill pride in us, we sang, If I die in a combat zone, Box me up and send me home. Pin my medals across my chest. And tell my girl I did my best. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. But as more and more men were falling behind, he said he was ashamed of us. He said we are a disgraceful and useless mob unworthy of dying in battle. So he changed the cadence to a song of shame and humiliation that turned the heads of the marines within distance to hear us sing the mickey mouse club song and we sang host the leader of the club that's made for you and me m-i-c-k-e-y m-o-u-s-e my chest was heaving and my lungs were burning my feet were starting to shuffle i could not believe i was still running i was tempted so many times to pull out of the formation and sit down but I knew that dropping dead was preferable than having Sergeant Calvert's wrath riding me every day. But I was at the end. Soon, all I could think about was going home. I remembered what our D.I.s told us when we arrived. They told us, when you think you can't go another step, you have another 30% left. Your mind will quit long before your body does. It is my job to take you to that 90% of that 30 I could not go any further, and we just kept running along the road. Quitting was the only word that was on my mind. I thought the hell with him. I just can't go any farther. Then he ordered us to march, and we slowed down to a normal pace. We continued to march to allow all the stragglers to catch up, and when everyone was present, he gave us the command to halt, sucking air deep into my lungs. I looked back down the road and realized that he took me far farther than I'd ever been or ever even willing to go. I was done Miles back, and yet here I am. Margins, boundaries, limitations, they have no place here. We're being trained for conditions and situations that are going to make us do the inconceivable. We weren't some football team at practice. This is not about conditioning, but about endurance and character. We were being trained to exceed our own expectations of ourselves and those of our enemies. The bar was going higher. My clothes were soaked with perspiration. I looked like I'd been standing in the rain. There was not a dry spot on my body. Calling us to attention, he stood in front of us and looking past him, I recognized the sand pits. Oh, Jesus Christ, he's not serious. I thought he's not going to make us do this tonight after all he's put us through. What a son of a bitch. What a bastard. Sergeant Calvert found another 30% of us and he wanted it. I knew it was going to be a very long night. I think after a little run like that, you people could use some time at the beach. So we're going to play some games in the sand. You probably want to drink beer and play volleyball. Maybe you want to walk around and look at the girls in their bikinis. But not today, privates. Today there will be no bikinis on the beach, because there are no bikinis in the jungles where you were going. Forward march. Moving us into the deep sand, he commanded. Instead, you're going to do squat thrusts. Fifty count, all together, face half right. Ready? Go! After hundreds of squat thrusts in the sand, to push-ups and sit-ups, we jumped up and down in the ankle-deep sand. Sand was everywhere, in our boots, mouths, nostrils, ears, trousers, and down in our underwear. It was all glued to our bodies with perspiration. A crust of sand covered our clothes like an extra layer of skin. The sand, wet from perspiration, clung to our bodies from head to toe. Most of us were unrecognizable with a thick layer of sand caked on our faces and necks. When we were finally exhausted, which didn't matter to him at all, he told us to slither on our bellies like other lower forms of life for fifty yards across the sand. Now it was pouring into our utilities and down into our t-shirts and boxers and socks. Grains of sand coated the inside of my mouth and stuck up in between my teeth and cheeks. I couldn't even spit it out because my mouth was so dry. It was dark now and late by the time we marched back to our huts. We were told the head would be closed until one hour after Taps, and we were to sleep in our utilities. Then I desperately needed water and a toothbrush. I climbed into my bunk with sand pouring out of my clothes onto my sheets. I cursed the day that Sergeant Calvert was born, and I cursed his mother too. When Taps blew and the lights clicked off, I took a couple seconds to say the prayer that I said every night, Oh God, when will this be over? Help me get out of here. And please, God, send Sergeant Calvert to hell. And then I just passed out.
0: And what's storytelling, folks? And that's Bob McClellan and the McClellan Files. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and look it up. And you'll see all of his work there. And you can pick up great stories in the middle. And my goodness, even in the middle... This one stands, and some lines that struck me about Sergeant Calvert. He took me farther than I'd ever been. This is not about conditioning, but endurance and character. And we were being trained to go beyond our expectations and our enemies. And how it ended. I cursed the day Sergeant Calvert was born. I cursed him. I cursed his mother, too. The McClellan Files, Bob McClellan's story, so many Marines story here on Our American story. This is Our American Stories, and Dr. Rick Rigsby is a San Francisco Bay Area native an award-winning TV journalist. He followed his six-year television news career with a six-year graduate school stint, culminating with a Ph.D. from the University of Oregon. Graduate school was followed by two decades as a college professor, the last 14 years at Texas A&M University, where Rick also served as character coach and chaplain for the Aggies football team. Dr. Rigsby is the author of Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout, the story of timeless common-sense wisdom learned from his father. He was invited to speak at the California State University Maritime Commencement in Northern California. Parts of his speech have since gone viral, and you will understand why in a minute, but some of the greatest parts were left out. Not today. Let's begin with Rigsby's opening remarks.
4: I won't be long we have a lot of activities some of them will go into the late hours of the night but I come from a predominantly black family I don't know if y'all can tell that or not and I happen to be an ordained minister now that's a lethal combination when it comes to time give big daddy some chicken wings I'll talk to you all day long hmm. Yes, sir. But in the words of King Henry VIII, as he spoke to each of his six wives, I won't keep you long, but... I will be very brief and on point. I promise you that.
0: Brief and on point is always something we want to hear at a commencement. Let's dive headfirst into Rigsby's talk to these college grads.
4: You won't ever receive the kind of knowledge that you've received in your time here. But I wish that you would couple that knowledge with something else, wisdom. Wisdom from a mother, wisdom from a father, a grandmother, a grandfather, an uncle, an aunt, a friend. Wisdom from somewhere. That that combination will keep you centered regardless of the turbulence of the sea. It's not about making a nice impression. It's about making an impact. It's about doing your best.
0: So how do we make an impact?
4: I learned how to make an impact from the wisest person I ever met in my life, a third grade dropouts. Wisest and dropout in the same sentence is rather oxymoronic. Like jumbo shrimp. Mm-hmm. Like fun run, ain't nothing fun about it. Like Microsoft works, y'all don't hear me. I used to say like country music, but I've lived in Texas so long, I, I love country music now. I, fact yeah. I hunt, I fish. I have cowboy boots and cowboy. Y'all, I'm a blackneck redneck. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? No longer oxymoronic for me to say country music, and it's not oxymoronic for me to say third grade and dropout. That third grade dropout, the wisest person I ever met in my life, who taught me to combine knowledge and wisdom to make an impact, was my father.
0: And let's hear more about his dad.
4: My daddy grew up in the piney woods of East Texas, a little town called Huntsville, Texas. After World War II was over, my father decided to be the only one in his family to migrate west. And in the 1950s, he found his way to the San Francisco Bay Area, fell in love with a forklift driver. My mother was a bad mamma jamma. Let me tell you right now, baby, <laughs> didn't need a man. He was just there. <laughs> my mother was a forklift driver over the Benicia Arsenal, uh, where they would, uh, she would provide the services to support uh, the war efforts during World War II. In the 50s, my mother and father get married, and they migrate to this area. My father gets a job as a cook. A simple cook. Wisest man i ever met in my life. Left school in the third grade to help out on the family farm, but just because he left school doesn't mean his education stopped. Mark Twain once said, I've never allowed my schooling to get in the way of my education. My father taught himself how to read, taught himself how to write. Decided in the midst of Jim Crowism As America was breathing the last gasp of the Civil War, my father decided he was gonna stand and be a man. Not a black man, not a brown man, not a white man, but a man. He literally challenged himself to be the best that he could all the days of his life.
0: Dr. Rigsby's not done talking about his father.
4: I have four degrees. My brother is a judge. We're not the smartest ones in our family. It's a third grade dropout daddy. A a third grade dropout daddy who was quoting Michelangelo when he was a cook at Cal Maritime, saying to us, boys, I won't have a problem if you aim high and miss, but I'm gonna have a real issue if you aim low and hit. A a country mother quoting Henry Ford, saying if you think you can or if you think you can't, you're right. I learned that from a third grade drop, simple lessons. Lessons like these, son, don't judge people. Son, I've worked at Cal Maritime. You know I've been all over the world. I've seen good and bad in every shade. Don't judge people. The tendency of a person is to walk away from somebody that's different from them. You stay there and you get to know them. Never judge. Then he dropped Jonathan Swift on me, who said vision is the ability to see the invisible. Don't judge. Another lesson from this third grade dropout. Son, you'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. We never knew what time it was at my house because the clocks were always ahead. My father had the breakfast and lunch shift here at the academy. He had to be at work at five o'clock. We lived on Louisiana Street, 15 minutes away. My mother said for nearly 30 years, my father left the house at 3.45 in the morning. One day she asked him, why daddy? He said, maybe one of my boys will catch me in the act of excellence. I want to share two things with you. Aristotle said, you are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit not an act. Don't ever forget that. The other thing I want to share with you is Harvard Business Review, September 2004. The article is titled, Deep Smarts. Here's the thesis. Lecturing, what our universities are based upon, is the worst kind of teaching method, usually. (laughs) Present company excluded. That if you want to get the intended message across, model the behavior. My daddy, a third grade dropout, a cook, was modeling excellence for his boys. Combining academic knowledge and old school wisdom, that's what makes an impact.
0: Don't judge, model excellence. Those were lessons one and two. It's time for lesson three from Rick's daddy.
4: Lesson number three, be kind to people. He always told us kind deeds are never lost. I get to do a lot of NFL chapels. You see some amazing things with those National Football League players. You see guys that can bench press 200, 300 pounds 20 times. You see folks that are huge, that can run like a deer. You see folks from a flat-footed position, jump 40 inches, 40-inch vertical leap. I even saw a white guy do it once. But the point... (laughs) You know what stops me in my tracks? When I see one of those rich folks show kindness. It literally stops the world. George Washington Carver said, when common people do common things in uncommon ways, they command the attention of the world I just described your grandmother. I know you're tough. I know you're seaworthy, but always remember to be kind. Always. Don't ever forget that. Never embarrass mama. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. If mama ain't happy... Ain't nobody happy. If daddy ain't happy, don't nobody care. But, you know, I to tell you.
0: And when we come back, more from Dr. Rick Rigsby. And he's the author of Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout. Boy, he's talking about his dad. He's talking to the California State University Maritime Commencement in Northern California. More of his story and his daddy's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we return to Dr. Rick Rigsby's lessons from a third-grade dropout commencement speech at Cal State University Maritime. And by the way, we do commencement speeches during the season, but also all year round, because so many good commencement speeches are floating out there. We occasionally even do really terrible ones, too. But let's return to Rigsby's, and here the good doctor kicks it up a couple of notches
4: next lesson lesson from a cook over there in the galley son make sure your servant's towel is bigger than your ego ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity y'all might have a relative in mind you want to send that to let me say it again ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity pride is the burden of a foolish person you'll never be a great shipmate You'll never be a great executive. You'll never be a great teammate if it's all about you. John Wooden coached basketball at UCLA for a living. But his calling was to impact people. And with all those national championships, guess what he was found doing in the middle of the week? Going into the cupboard, grabbing a broom, and sweeping his own gym floor. You want to make an impact? Find your broom. Every day of your life, you find your broom.
0: Let's continue.
4: Final lesson. Son, if you're gonna do a job, do it right. I know grammatically that's not correct, it ought to be it well, but I like that old school ghetto, kinda <laughs> do it the right way. I'm thinking about a little boy in Los Angeles, all he wants to do is play little league baseball. His mother can't even afford to buy him a glove. And he eventually plays little league, and he's really good. And he's so good he gets a scholarship to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And he's so good he gets drafted by the San Diego Padres. And he's so good he helps the St. Louis Cardinals win a World Series. Twelve years ago when Ozzie Smith walked into the Hall of Fame, he said during his induction speech, and in part I quote word for word, he said, I've always been told how average I can be. But I want to tell you something. I stand here before you, before all of these people, not listening to those words, but telling myself every single day to be the best that I can be. Good enough isn't good enough if it can be better. And better isn't good enough if it can be best.
0: Rigsby concludes this last lesson with a story.
4: Back in the 70s, to help me make this point, let me introduce you to someone. I met the finest woman I'd ever met in my life. Mm Mm-hmm. Back in my day, we would have called her a brick house. I was going to that great academic institution in the north, Chico State. Y'all don't know what I'm talking about. Probably studying really hard. (coughs) Let me just put it to you like this. I I haven't always been a preacher, if you understand what I'm saying. This woman was the finest woman I'd ever seen in my life. There's just one little problem. Back then, ladies didn't like big old linemen. The blind side hadn't come out yet. <laughs> they, they like quarterbacks and running backs. Any former quarterbacks or running backs here? Raise your hands. Why? A couple of you? Punks. Anyway, so we're at this dance, and I find out her name is Trina Williams from Lompoc, California. And, and we, we're all dancing, and we're, we're just, just excited. And I decide in the middle of dancing with her that I would ask her for her phone number. She, Trina was the first one, Trina was the only woman in college who gave me her real telephone number. The next day we walked to Basket and Robbins ice cream parlor. My friends couldn't believe it. This has been 40 years ago and my friends still can't believe it. We go on a second date and a third date and a fourth date. Mm-hmm. We drive from Chico, to Vallejo so that she could meet my parents. My father meets her, my daddy, my hero, he meets her, pulls me to the side and says, is she psycho? But anyway, (laughs) we go together for a year, two years, three years, four years. By now, Trina's a senior in college. I'm still a freshman, but I'm working some things out. (laughs) I'm so glad I graduated in four terms. Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan. So now it's, it's, it's time to propose, so I talked to her girlfriends, and it's California, it's in the 70s, so it has to be outside, have to have a candle, and you have to have, you know, some chocolate. Listen, I'm from the hood, I had a bottle of Boone's Farm wine, that's what I had. She said yes! That was the key. I married the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my Y'all ever been to a wedding, and even before the wedding starts, you hear this, how in the world? AND IT WAS COMING FROM MY SIDE OF THE FAMILY! (laughs) WE GET MARRIED, WE HAVE A FEW CHILDREN, OUR LIVES ARE GREAT.
0: THEIR LIVES ARE GREAT, BUT THEN...
4: ONE DAY, TRINA FINDS A LUMP IN HER LEFT BREAST. BREAST CANCER. SIX YEARS AFTER THAT DIAGNOSIS, ME AND MY TWO LITTLE BOYS WALKED UP TO MOMMY'S CASKET. And for two years, my heart didn't beat. If it wasn't for my faith in God, I I wouldn't be standing here today. If it wasn't for those two little boys, there would have been no reason for which to go on. I was completely lost. That was rock bottom. You know what sustained me? The wisdom of a third grade dropout. The wisdom of a simple cook from California Maritime Academy. We're at the casket in College Station, Texas. I'd never seen my dad cry. Big, strong man. There are several alumni that remember Riggs that are here. We've been sharing stories all weekend. But this time I saw my dad cry. That was his daughter. Trina was his daughter, not his daughter-in-law. And I'm right behind my father, about to see her for the last time on this earth. And my father shared three words with me that changed my life right there at the casket. It would be the last lesson he would ever teach me. He said, son, you keep standing. No matter what, you don't give up. I learned that lesson from a third grade dropout who was a cook at Cal Maritime who said, boy, you keep standing no matter what. I stood and a miracle took place. A couple of years later, my heart started to beat again. I'm talking in a group about like this when all of a sudden I spot the finest woman I've ever met in my life again. (laughs) First thing Janet did after we got married was she adopted those little boys, fulfilling Trina's last wish that her babies not go through life without a mommy. And then we decided to do something really bright. We thought 16, 17 years ago, and that was have more children. It's worked out lovely. And I'm honored to tell you that we had more boys. I have four boys from 34 years old all the way down to my daddy's youngest grandson, who's here with me this weekend, Joshua Rigsby, sitting on the front row right there.
0: And what a story this is, folks. Not your ordinary commencement speech. I would have remembered this one. Son, you keep standing. Remember Denzel Washington, fall forward his great commencement speech, Fall Forward. Dr. Rigsby makes this final point, and it's more salient than any of his previous words. And again, this is a commencement speech at California State University Maritime, and Dr. Rick Rigsby's Lessons from a Third Grade Dropout is, well, it's a book about his dad. Let's take a listen.
4: Let me take you back to two days before Trina died. No hair because of chemotherapy, cadets. A tummy pooched out because of a liver no longer working. She weighed about 75 pounds. I'm in the kitchen so I can keep an eye on her in the family room. She's surrounded by pillows. Our then youngest son, Andrew, walks up with a shirt that he wants mommy to fold. And this is what I hear from Trina. Andrew. Mama not always gonna be there to help you she was saying goodbye and i was so moved i waited for andrew to leave and i walked over and i sat next to her on the couch and as clearly as i'm talking to you today these were some of her last words to me she looked me in the eye and she said it doesn't matter to me any longer how long i live what matters to me most is how I live, how you living, how you living. Every day ask yourself that question, how you living? Here's, here's what a cook would suggest, that you would not judge, that you would show up early, that you'd be kind, that you'd make sure that that servant's towel is huge and used, that if you're gonna do something, you do it the right way. That, that, that cook would tell you this, that it's never wrong to do the right thing. That how you do anything is how you do everything. And in that way, you will grow your influence to make an impact. In that way, you will honor all those who have gone before you, who have invested in you. It is with great honor that I say all your life, look in those unlikeliest places for wisdom. Enhance your life every day by seeking that wisdom and asking yourself every night, How am I living? May God richly bless y'all. Thank you for
0: having me here. And what a speech. Dr. Rick Rigsby's story, his father's story, his bride Trina's story. How are you living? Good question to ask every day to yourself and all of your loved ones. All of their stories. Here on Our American Story.